Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. This episode is produced for Forbes, as I'm a Forbes contributor covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing. Today's guest is Dr. James Mayfield, a co-founder of Choice Humanitarian, an author of a number of books, and an emeritus professor at the University of Utah. And Jim has been working on poverty eradication for much of the last 30 years. Jim, thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to have you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. I wonder if you would take us back to the time when you founded Choice to talk a little bit about the circumstances of the day and what inspired you to create that entity. I had been teaching a number of uh, graduate seminars. Many of my students were former Peace Corps volunteers. And uh, we were in a stage of development at that point where it became quite apparent that uh, there were many unintended consequences uh, in development work. Uh, I know in the 60s, for example, we were trying to uh, work with the Green Revolution, uh, introducing modern agricultural technology. Uh, the, the unintended consequence, of course, was that it was the rich farmers that could use this technology and the poor farmers simply got poorer. Uh, finally, in the, eight, in the 70s, we began to realize that we really needed to uh, introduce technology into this area, work on the basic needs, but again, the basic unintended consequence um, had to be that uh, the bureaucrats and, and the international consultants were, were clearly being rewarded uh, with large amounts of money, but very little of it was trickling down to the poorest of the poor. It really was in the 1980s, and that's when a group of my students decided that we might create an organization that would focus not on a top-down approach, which was clearly the 60s and the 70s, to a more bottom-up approach. And that, that was very uh, exciting at that time. We'd go into individual villages. Uh, we would set up programs, uh, build small schools, water systems, uh, health clinics, and so forth. But by the end of the 80s, it became quite apparent that this project-focused approach uh, clearly was not sustainable. That while working at that single village level was very rewarding and the villagers clearly appreciated us, there clearly wasn't a sustainable system being implemented. And that was why in the 90s we, we decided that the time had come <laughs> that we needed experts going into these villages, working at the village level. We hired a number of village experts, uh, the Choice Organization. But again, by the end of the 90s, it became apparent that if we hired an expert in livestock, then all the projects tended to be livestock. And if we focused on a health expert, then all the projects were health projects. Now, the villagers needed these health projects and these livestock projects and, and these educational projects. But the villagers were simply dependent on the outside expert. And they would wait for the next iteration of new projects coming up year after year. So it was that first decade in the 21st century that we quickly understood that we had to focus on local leadership, that it would be local leadership that would be the key to this. And if we could gain their trust and create a kind of curriculum training these village leaders, that uh, they would solve the problem for us. 
the problem, the unintended consequence, again, was that when we turned it over to the local leaders to implement projects in water and, and in education and health and so forth, that the upper poor and the middle poor tended to benefit from these projects, but the extreme poor were still being ignored. And that's when we made a, a paradigm shift in the way we wanted to approach poverty alleviation, poverty eradication. Well, it, it is a remarkable thing. And I, I want to take just a, t a moment to kind of drill down on your credibility. I, I think some people who are watching this interview and see you in your comfortable leather chair <laughs> might have the perception that you are a retired expert who who offers up this counsel, this expertise uh, from the position of a Monday morning quarterback. But, <laughs> but in fact, the reality is you spend much of your time on the ground in Nepal every year, this year included. Tell us a little bit about what you are doing personally on the ground okay. right now. It's, uh, I have to tell you a quick story because it was my grandson that really shifted my, my approach. I, I had been working with USAID, with the World Bank, UNDP for many years in projects all over the world in a number of countries. My grandson said, Grandpa, you're almost 80 years old. What is it you want to do that you haven't done before you die? Now, I realize the grandson can ask that question, but it, it provoked a thought in me that maybe if I had a choice, I would like to see poverty truly eliminated in at least one country. His comment to me was, Grandpa, find a country and do it. And within a month, I received an invitation from President Madam Yadav, President of Nepal. Uh, he invited Vishnu and I, Vishnu who was our country director in Nepal, invited us to a program where they would honor us for our work of the previous 10 years in Nepal. And I, I've spent my whole life working out in the field. I am a field man. Uh, I sit in this comfortable leather chair, but this is not where I, I love to be, even if I am 80. So uh, tell us a little bit about what is going on on the ground now in Nepal. I, I'm excited. I'm going to uh, join a choice expedition next February, and I'm excited about that. But give us a sense of what is actually going on on the ground and maybe give us some idea of what the expeditions are all about. Good. Uh, these expeditions usually uh, last for a week or two. People go into the village, they live in the village, they work with the villagers, um, they travel to this country to essentially experience what it's like to, to live in a village where there's no electricity, no potable water, um, the, the extreme poverty is just unbelievably miserable. And uh, what we're trying to do is to, and, and this was worked out with the government, that we would work in one district, one rural district. There's 75 districts in Nepal, rural districts. We'd work in one of these areas, an area of about 100,000 people, and we would focus on the extreme poor among this 100,000 people in roughly 20 village development council areas, about 5,000 people in each village area. Our purpose was to go through a three-phase project or process. The first, the first year, we're really trying to create an enabling environment. We are working with local leaders. We're training them in, in processes of good governance, 
uh, results-based management. We, we really teach them how to network and leverage their local resources. Uh, I've been absolutely amazed to watch how just with a year of training, village leaders are able to leverage, say, $100 or $1,000 to five, six, seven times that through their own networking and their own partnership building. So that's the first phase of, of this program. The second phase is attempting to involve every single member in the village in some kind of a cooperative, a local economic cooperative. The idea is that every family is invited to join this cooperative. Historically, cooperatives have generally been dominated by the richer farmers, the more affluent farmers. We're saying even if a farmer can only pay a dollar a month to be a part of that cooperative, we want every single family. And much of that first year is essentially gaining the commitment of the village leaders that when this cooperative is established, every member of every family will be involved. Now what's unique about that is that even if it's a dollar, uh, and all of the families are putting a certain amount in, $5, 10 20 even $50 a month, that gradually that money reaches a certain level, usually $1,000. When they receive that, when that amount of money is coming in every month on a regular basis, we then contact a local bank system. And we say to the local banker, you, of course, cannot in good conscience give a loan to a, an extreme poor person who has no collateral but we're creating what we call collective collateral. And this money coming in from these communities, uh, we will put this in a savings account in your bank, and all we ask is that you begin to give loans out to these villagers with at least a third of these uh, loans going to the poorest of the poor, the people that are usually ignored in most banking and local economic systems. Uh, the real challenge of economic development in my opinion, the unintended consequence, which has plagued many, many organizations, is that when you focus on an individual and give him training in uh, economic development, all that essentially does is increase the gap between the rich and the poor. There is no mechanism for making sure that that process is equitable, that somehow you're not just bringing a few who are capable and, and competent and they and they move out of poverty very nicely. But we're looking for a system where every single family can participate. And, and the, a beautiful example is when I was there just in March, this is this little village in Nepal, um, just outside of, uh, in the Longjun area, met with a village leader. And he said, Mr. Mayfield, for the first time, I realize that we as a village have rich poor, middle poor, and extreme poor. And for the first time, we as village leaders recognize that we can't develop until the poorest of the poor are at least up to the level of the middle poor, which goes from $1.25 a day to, say, two fifty a day. Uh, at $1.25, they may have a meal every other day. They never have a meal every day. Their children don't go to school because they're begging, trying to just survive. They have few assets. They don't have permanent uh, employment. And just by helping them gain access to these this credit process, small enterprises, they move up to that $2.50 level. 
and now they have food on the table every day, their children are going to school, their husband or wife has permanent employment, and, and they have moved from a level of survival and simply coping to a level where at least they're at a playing field uh, equal enough that when credit is available, they can move to a much higher level. It is an interesting uh, foundation to focus on uh, rescuing that that poor of the poorest of the poor. It, it harks back, of course, to Mother Teresa's approach of focusing on the poorest of the poor. I think her approach was was intended, oftentimes, to offer relief. Your approach is different. Your approach is to lift them out of the circumstance they're in, not to make their circumstance more bearable. How did you develop that philosophy? Where did that come from in your early experience? Uh, people have often time asked me, why do you focus on the extreme poor? I mean, the middle poor are also poor, and even the upper poor, uh, they might have a bicycle, whereas the extreme poor have, have nothing. Uh, and my answer is, it, it does two things. The reason I focus on the extreme poor is because local leaders, if they're going to have the legitimacy and the competency uh, and the commitment to good principles of, I mean, principles of good governance, accountability and responsibility and transparency, anti-corruption and so forth, that when they make the conscious decision to take responsibility for the poorest of the poor, something happens in their in their minds, these leaders, when they begin to say, no, let's not wait for the government to come and take care of the poorest of the poor. We as a community should begin to do that. So that, that's the first reason I like to focus, because it really impacts on the village leaders themselves. The second, of course, is that it obviously helps the poorest of the poor. They, for the first time, their $1 a month is as valuable as the $20 a month from a rich farmer. And they feel involved, they feel included, uh, and the vulnerability and the exploitation that characterizes their lives begins to begins to just be in the in history. It seems, from my experience and exposure to these kinds of efforts, that it takes time. Mm -hmm. That, mm. that people don't immediately change. And in fact, a change is required in order to get people to adopt new behaviors, adopt new thinking. What kind of time frame are you seeing is required to move a village from where you find them to where you can all but leave them behind to work independently on their own? To answer that question, I hope we have enough time to say, I need to say one thing about the post-2015 development goals of the United Nations. Yes. Because this, this goal, this, this new system of goals between 2015 and 2030 is a timeline that I want to use in answering, my question, answering your question. This, this post-2015 development goal system is based on five very important areas. First of all, that the goal is to eliminate extreme poverty throughout the world by the year 2030. I mean, that, that is the first fundamental foundation of this new set of goals. The second is that because most serious extreme poverty is in rural areas, 
the focus will be on villages and the rural areas in, of the countries. The third is that you need effective institutions at that local level based upon principles of good governance. If you don't have leaders who have integrity and honesty and, and they're anti-corruption and they're committed to take responsibility for their village in an honorable and appropriate way, it, it won't happen. So that's very important. The next area is what I call the multi-sector approach to development, which requires the public sector, government, the private sector, business, and the, civil, and the social sector, civil society, working together in systems of partnership and networking for sustainable progress. And that's a very important. But the last one, and the one I want to really focus on, is the this goal says if we're going to really do this, we must have a baseline data uh, established where we go out and interview all the families that we're working in, we find out what their problems are, we find out what level of poverty they're in, and then we go back a year later, have we made any progress with this program we were using? We go back a year later, have we made any progress? And it seems to me that our commitment, this is Choice's commitment, we've now interviewed 13,228 families in this long June district. And we found that about 19% of them are in extreme poverty. We found that most of them have serious problems with literacy, with good health, with, with the quality of leadership. They, they want better leadership in, the, in their own leaders, and that clearly is one of our major missions. Uh, but what's really interesting is their level of happiness. They're satisfied with their family relationships. They're satisfied with opportunities to be with their friends and in leisure. So when people talk about the extreme poor, I like to think about moving them to a better quality of life rather than increasing their income. The income is not correlated with quality of life. And, and so that's, that's why for us it's, it's, a, it's three years. Uh, the first one is 2014 to 2016. We want to take these, these 100,000 people, uh, the, say the, the, um, the families that are in extreme poverty, and bring them out of extreme poverty in the next three years. The government then has indicated that they'll go to 10 districts from 2017, 18, and 19. They'll take a million. We're dealing with 100,000. Now they'll be dealing with a million. And then President Yadav has said 2020 to 2030, let's go to the other 50 or so rural districts and use this program to bring the entire extreme poverty community out of poverty by the year 2030. Wow, that's that's an amazing uh, timeline, isn't it? It's very exciting to think about that coming together. Listen, our time is short, but Jim, I wonder if you would tell us so that those who are listening, who'd like to get involved, who'd like to engage, tell people what they can do, how they can find out more information. If they want to join an expedition like the one I'll be joining next February, wh where do they go? What do they do? Uh, if they want to give you some money, if they want to learn more about your work, how do they find you? Okay, two things. The, the, the easiest and the first step would simply be to, to call a number, 801-474-1937. No, call Choice, the office, say, tell us about your expeditions, tell us about how we can be involved. Second way, of course, would be to go to our website, 
choicehumanitarian.org and it lists all of the expeditions, how much they cost, how long and when are they organized, people can be involved. But from our perspective, what we really want are people who can give over an extended period of time. A lot of people want to give once and then it's gone. But we prefer to see people take some ownership for this process of extreme poverty alleviation and to make a commitment, even if it's five, ten dollars a month for three years, that's the way our budget, it's about a million dollars for the first three years. Uh, it'll be ten million dollars, 17, 18, 2019. Uh, so we, we see where we're going, but this first year, this first three years, uh, we're looking for many, many people giving a small amount, but giving it to us on a regular basis. Fantastic. Well, Jim, thank you very much for your time. I congratulate you for the great work you have done and wish you every success in the great work that you continue to do. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devinthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devon is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.